Good evening. Um, I'm Janet Jacobson. I'm the director of the Barnard Center for Research on Women, and I want to um, welcome you to this year's Rosalind Silver 27 Science Lecture, uh, which is entitled Moving Images, Psychoanalytically Informed Methods in Documenting the Lives of Women Migrants and Asylum Seekers. So our speaker we are very happy to have with us tonight is Janice Hocken, who is Professor Emerita of Psychology at Portland State University. She's a clinical psychologist in private practice and also a documentary filmmaker, as you'll see tomorrow night. She has published extensively in the areas of psychoanalysis and feminism, the psychology of storytelling, culture and memory, and group responses to violence and trauma. She is the author of many books, including Pillar of Salt, Gender, Memory, and the Perils of Looking Back, Hard Knocks, Domestic Violence, and the Psychology of Storytelling, which is from 2010. And she is also the co-author of Speaking Out, Women, War, and the Global Economy from 2005, and co-editor of Memory Matters, Understanding Re Recollections of Sexual Abuse. Her films um, include Guilty Except for Insanity and the new film Mind Zone Therapist Behind the Front Lines. Um, you can read uh, uh, Professor Hawkins' discussion of the connections between her projects on the BCRW blog, which is on our website. The website is bcrw.barnard.edu. Um, and to get to the blog, you can um, go to bcrw.barnard.edu slash blog. Um, we invite you to um, not only read Professor Hawkins' posting on the blog, but also respond to it, because we hope that this is a conversation that will continue not just tonight and tomorrow night, but into the future. So without further ado, I bring you Janice Hawkins. Thank you so much, Janet, for that introduction and, and to the Barnard Center for Research on Women for inviting me to present the uh, Rosalind Silver Fellowship Lecture this year. I'm tremendously honored to be here and look forward to discussion with um, all of you after my presentation this evening. Um, I'll be speaking for about 30 minutes and then showing you a 10-minute video that came out of the study I'll be discussing tonight. Hopefully they'll, how, how long does, do these events? Okay, so we'll see. There'll be plenty of time for discussion. I know many of you work across disciplinary boundaries, so I um, expect that it will be a lively discussion. From women fleeing domestic abuse, refugees crossing borders, activists engage in global hip-hop, to therapists working in war zones, my field work over the past decade is focused on the, psych uh, the social psychology of border crossings, liminal spaces that carry heavy social symbolic loadings. In analyzing the role of storytelling in women's border crossings, whether transgressed transgressing the gender divide or crossing geographical boundaries. My attention in recent years has turned to the costs of various narrative and representational strategies for securing passage across tense social borders. In moving from text to visual images in my documentary film work, I've been concerned with unintended consequences of feminist strategies of subversive storytelling, of speaking and breaking silence of making visible the invisible. Academic psychology is an empirical science 
although many of us have engaged in long-standing and lively debates over what counts as empirical. It is curious in a sense that storytelling, that most basic and universal of human mental activities, has been so neglected in, in academic psychology. Theodore Sorb, uh, Sarban and Jerome Bruner introduced the narrative turn in psychology in the 1980s and 90s, arguing that all mental life is structured around the production of stories, around creating units of associations that organize and make sense of the world. But stories are not readily reduced to discrete variables, whether those stories are transmitted through oral traditions, texts, or pictures. For researchers schooled in the procedural logic of positivism, the truth value of stories is measured by their correspondence to observable facts. But this approach fails to capture the system of meanings, the complex web of signifiers produced and reproduced through human storytelling. The truth value of stories depends on the context of reception as well, as scholars in the field of cultural and film criticism routinely point out. There is a performative aspect of storytelling, and performances require particular skills for those subject to the control of police and border guards. Black traditions of music, call and response songs that can be read as spiritual by some and subversive by others, remind us that stories carry multiple meanings as they traverse the cultural and political landscape. Yet those, those whose very survival depends on establishing that their story is anything but a performance meet us at a rocky place in the road. With such roadblocks in mind, I argue here that the tense border in feminist scholarship between hot anti-violence politics and cool cultural theory provides important thinking space for working through dilemmas and research informed by social justice commitments. In this presentation, I discuss a recent project carried out with Maggie O'Neill, a social psychologist at Durham University, England, and a group of 10 women asylum seekers who chose to remain anonymous in the documents produced through the project. Enlisting participatory and visual methods, the studies sought to document how the group of women in Northeast England interprets processes of community safety in the context of their experiences of exile, displacement, and transition. We approach asylum seeking as a daily process rather than a final decision granted by the Border Control Agency. The women who participated were from West Africa, South Asia, and the Middle East, and at various places in the process of seeking asylum. Each woman was provided a disposable camera to document images and locations as we walked together through the town following a collectively produced map of important sites. A woman who worked as a refugee advocate also joined the group, video recording parts of the process. Our aim was to produce a picture of this habitat as a collective tale of asylum seeking and as a community intervention and counter to the stereotypical images of asylum seekers that dominate the UK uh, news media. Maggie and I had each carried out a number of projects guided by psychoanalytic feminist theory and participatory social action research methods, 
approaches that emphasize collaboration in the production of social knowledge. While psychoanalytic and action researchers mutually emphasize the subjective and relational sides of science, psychoanalytic researchers attend to unconscious anxieties and defenses not readily accessible through methods of self-reflection, for example, through field notes or journaling. I try to show through examples from our study how psychoanalytic theory can assist us in advancing critical projects of feminist inquiry. In describing some of the epistemological commitments of psychoanalytically informed action research, I often refer to what I call the three Ps, the premises, processes, and the products of research. The study begins with reflection on premises, those assumptions research participants bring to the project, including ideological assumptions. Drawing on psychoanalytic theory, we also consider unconscious fantasies, representations of self in relation to others that work their way into conceptions of inquiry. Attentiveness to processes, the second P, involves creating what psychoanalysts term a holding environment, a structure for working together that facilitates both freedom of inquiry and ethical and social boundaries. Research teams can be emotionally intense places where transferences abound, places where painful relational histories are often revived and reenacted. The third P concerns the products of inquiry. For whom is this knowledge being produced? For action researchers, there is an explicit commitment to societal change and alliances with oppressed groups. A psychoanalytically informed approach includes attentiveness to various strivings and struggles for recognition beyond the scope of officially acknowledged audiences of, of scholarship. This issue of the absent audience, fantasies of authority that inhabit the unconscious life of the group, is taken up here as it emerges in research on refugees and asylum seekers. In this presentation, I, I use the asylum study to discuss ways of thinking specifically about visual methods in feminist research, illustrating with examples of premises, processes, and products of this study. After drawing out some of the heuristics that guided the project, I show a 10-minute video that I produced, uh, finished the other day, <laughs> that will be screened next week um, at a community meeting in England along with a photo exhibit produced by the group. Psychoanalytically, present dilemmas include a perpetual return of the, rep of, of the repressed past. One historical case that came to mind when I started the asylum project this past spring illustrates the complex dynamics of politically contested stories and some of what has been at stake for feminists in believing women's accounts. It was the summer of 1997, and a woman named Adelaide Banqua arrived at the JFK airport from Ghana and was questioned by the INS about a fake passport. During the questioning, it was established that her passport was forged, but she subsequently appealed for asylum. In waiting for her case to be reviewed, Abankwa was sent to the Wakenhut Detention Center near the airport a private prison contracted uh, under contract with the INS. 
Asylum seekers are not provided legal counsel in the United States and instead are left to navigate an impossibly complex bureaucratic process, often languishing in detention centers for months or even years. Abankwa was luckier than most because her case was taken up by powerful supporters who provided her with skilled legal counsel. The reasons Abankwa's story captured such interests were overdetermined by broader dynamics of the anti-violence movement of the time. During the 1990s, the, the anti-female genital mutilation, FGM, a campaign in the United States resulted in a change in immigration law that permitted such cases to be considered for refugee status and granting uh, of asylum. Feminist campaigns from incest to ritual abuse advanced through a rhetorical strategy of believing women with increasingly dramatic stories of bodily inflicted abuse taking center stage. Before INS courts and the press, Abankwa told the story of why she had fled West Africa. She was from a village in central Ghana and in line to take the throne after the death of her mother, who was queen mother of her tribe. As she was prepared for this tribal role, it was discovered that Abankwa was no longer a virgin, having taken a lover as a girl. As punishment and preparation for the throne, elders threatened her with genital circumcision. Although Ghana had outlawed the practice several years prior, she claimed that the, that the state did not protect her from the threat of FGM by, by elders in her village. Equality Now, Hillary Clinton, Gloria Steinem, and a roster of women celebrities took up the Free Adelaide campaign and mobilized sufficient support to win her asylum petition. Two years later, the Washington Post broke the story that Adelaide was an imposter. Her name was Regina Norma Danson, and there was no queen mother or threat of genital mutilation in her village. Her identity was established by her confused family in Ghana, as well as the fact that she had worked as a cook in a local hotel. Whatever the more mundane story of misery that led her to leave her home country, it never got told. She was branded an imposter, and the Free Adelaide campaign fell from sight. What are our ethical and political responsibilities in such cases, and to Danson herself? The feminist campaign had centered on believing her story, and belief in the veracity of all female victims was, for many feminists, the grounding principle of sisterhood. When, her, when accounts are irrefutably proven false, however, the grounds for, for support quickly recede along with the sinking story. Overlooked in this sad denouement to the Free Adelaide campaign were the complex relational dynamics that moved this account along and the role of audiences in shaping the tale that unfolds. Had Adelaide met with an open borders campaign or a dismantled detention prisons campaign, it would have been a more uphill battle, but a fight that acknowledged the real toll of US immigration policy. So now I'm gonna, I'll be talking about premises. 
Whether through traditional or participatory social action methods, researchers make choices based on various assumptions that frame the inquiry from the start. Researchers may unconsciously sense that their job is to draw out the most dramatic examples of injustice, focusing on graphic elements of the story as an advocate committed to bearing witness to suffering. Visual images are often deployed to break through numbing conditions of denial concerning the suffering of women. But the affective power of photographs and moving images can be manipulative for progressive campaigns, no less than politically regressive ones. Scholars in the field of refugee studies increasingly recognize the role of translators of refugee and asylum testimony including refugee organizations and NGOs, in shaping accounts. Lisa Malky has written extensively on how visual representations of refugees often perpetuate notions of what she calls a bare humanity, humans with no cultural baggage of their own, and unthreatening because they carry so little on their backs. More recently, Judith Butler cautions against human rights campaigns that overinvest in testimonial truths. A heightened moral problem of the post-war era, Butler suggests, drawing on the work of Hannah Arendt, centers on how we respond to exposure to the human suffering and vulnerability of those beyond our borders, and quote, that our political situation consists in part on how best to handle and to honor this constant and necessary exposure, unquote. In responding to this moral demand, Butler alerts us to the dangers in enlisting stories as the basis for establishing an ethical and moral response to suffering. All stories are untruthful, in a sense, because they are never able to capture their contingent nature. Quote, once again from Butler, the narrative I effectively adds to the story every time it tries to speak. My account of myself is partial, haunted by that for which I can devise no definitive story, unquote. Yet asylum seekers are required to produce coherent, consistent, and comprehensive accounts of the world they left behind and the terrors that led them to the borders of the host country. Without attending to the political premises of a program of inquiry, researchers may unwittingly reproduce the very problems they intend to address by relying on the most evocative and readily visible effects of immigration policies. Yet from a psychoanalytic perspective, we are as concerned with absences as we are with the presence of objects in our field of vision. Forces on the periphery of what is most readily noticed are part of the field of the, what we call the social unconscious, the absent other in the form of state power and the global flow of capital. Psychoanalytic theory brings to theorizing, feminist theorizing, the visual, uh, the, the visual an emphasis on pleasure in looking, scopophilia as constitutive of subjectivity. This pleasure carries infantile anxieties projected onto the world, whether in the form of powers associated with the gaze or looking, just as there are anxieties and defenses associated with looking away. 
This displacement of vision and turning away from the frightening object was central to Freud's concept of the masculine fetish, a concept taken up by feminist film theorists in working with the politics of spectatorship. Feminist theorists draw on psychoanalysis in emphasizing the anxious, conflicted, and ambivalent currents of masculine identity in patriarchal societies. The feminine object as a fantasy or an object in the field of vision, an image in the field of vision, serves as repository for disavowed or repressed masculine anxieties. In focusing on the dynamic instability of such psychological and gendered processes, psychoanalytic feminists argue that this instability opens space for political intervention and change. As an activist scholar, there is a kind of easy but costly virtue that accompanies identifications with marginalized groups. This identification may take the form of what psychoanalysts described as an incorporative defensive response. Rather than deny your ontological existence, I recognize you as an extension or part of myself. In the relational dynamics of imperialism, Bell Hooks describes this narcissistic form of defensive recognition as eating the other, a concept some of you may be familiar with. Feminists engaged in global campaigns may also defensively eat the other, gathering women in a sisterly fold without attending sufficiently to the particularity or complexity of woman as other. Psychology, whether through psychoanalytic theory or not, tends to focus on the micro level of human problems and has a long history of obscuring the broader macro level forces that constrain human possibilities for action and agency. A key premise of our project centered on the importance of the history of immigration and asylum policies, as well as how irrational policies persists through the social management of public anxieties, fears, and fantasies. What is irrational from one perspective, however, might, may be quite rational from another. While men have dominated the ranks of economic migrants historically, several decades of closing the borders for purposes of economic immigration have produced a new ideological loading of the claims of asylum seekers, particularly in Britain. The UK border agency website boldly exclaims its commitment to separate the legitimate from the illegitimate claims and to smoothing the flow of business across borders and bringing entrepreneurial skills into the country. The male asylum seeker is often cast as suspect, sneaking into the country under the garb of helplessness to suck voraciously on the generous tit of the queen mother. Female migrants have come onto the stage in recent years in media portraits of global instability, and their cases are now more apt to be approved than those of male asylum seekers in both the US and the UK. Asylum seekers' stories may be deployed to affirm the beneficence of the state, even as these same stories are used to justify the policing of borders. 
Although, although the 1951 UN Convention related to the status of refugees established the right of asylum and criteria for refugee status, that and subsequent provisions in international law also uphold the right of national sovereignty, the right to, of nation states to determine whether any particular case meets criteria for asylum. Although militarized borders and detention centers are part of the security apparatus of modern states, including the UK and the US, the political legitimacy of this policing apparatus depends on preserving its human face. Refugees may be located anywhere in the world, attached to distant tragedies and faceless as part of a mass of suffering. But the asylum seeker has a face and carries a singular story, arriving on the borders with an appeal for protection and a moral claim. Whereas, whereas the agents of the state generate policies for keeping refugees at a distance, the asylum seeker has, by definition, cr crossed a threshold of distance and established herself in our midst as a person who has asserted the right to remain. As the embodiment of need and vulnerability, the asylum seeker, whether male or female, occupies a feminized position in the Western imagination. In undertaking our asylum study, we sought to transgress the narrow boundaries of this position, opening space for a more complex refugee subjectivity processes. Having both worked with refugees and other politically vulnerable groups for many years, Maggie and I found common ground in the use of visual methods and participatory uh, action research. Many photo voice projects on asylum seekers have been criticized for gathering testimony that separates testifier and text at critical junctures in the process of producing documents. Photos and testimonials of refugees may be extracted and produced in ways that advance institutional aims in the name of advocacy. Photo voice and related visual methods seek to humanize research findings and reduce social distance by enlisting Im images produced by participants themselves. But if a picture is thought to tell a thousand words, it also masks a multitude of stories. Photographs selected by participants are often combined in a photo gallery or exhibit to produce a group account of a um, domain or phenomenon. The whole is not necessarily the sum of its parts, however, and the meaning of the whole depends on conventions of looking, as well as the status of those who ultimately assemble those parts. Staying within a collaborative frame and close to the lived accounts of participants carries us some distance through such dilemmas. But behind every story are a range of political positions and aims. In our asylum project, we recognize that advocates and asylum seekers themselves held differing politics concerning the legitimacy of the state's sovereign power to control national borders. Some call for open borders, for decriminalizing entry, and for dismantling the brutalizing and costly investments in border patrolling. Others call for a liberalizing of the asylum process, 
including greater recognition of women's claims based on gender violence. A shared strategy of refugee advocates involves shifting the focus of suspicion from the, from the asylum seeker to the state itself. In the UK, the media routinely discredits asylum seekers, promoting a bias of suspicion based on the assumption that most claims are, quote, bogus. Various agents of the state in their roles as border guards are invested with the task of assessing whether the stories of asylum seekers are, quote, true cases versus bogus cases. In response, advocates stress the veracity of asylum claims and the impossibilities of making a reasonable case. Telling the story of the traumas fled, often involving sexual violence, confronts insurmountable obstacles as it falls on the deaf ears of border agents. Asylum seekers must be able to articulate in detail what happened to them and what they anticipate if they were to return to their home countries. Even as distortions in memory are widely recognized as a psychological effect of trauma, Western border officials offer little latitude for such distortions. The demand for a coherent account and documented evidence sets a high bar for believability, even when professional translators assist in the telling of the story. In our asylum study, women were asked at our first meeting to say whatever they chose to share about themselves and how they arrived in the country. Although many of the women did describe the reasons for which they were applying for asylum, the work of the group centered on the asylum process rather than establishing the legitimacy of their accounts. Our asylum seekers, like others, have had extensive experiences with the habits of Western official listeners. As Bomer and Schumann describe it, quote, we let in people whose experiences are so horrifying that we're shocked. Others don't get in, unquote. One risk of featuring women asylum seekers as model migrants, worthy through emotionally moving testimonies that ordinary economic migrants lack, is that researchers participate in the institutional legitimation of an oppressive system. With the militarizing of borders and expansion of police powers in both the UK and the US, Stories of exceptional cases are used to affirm the beneficence and reasonableness of the state. Within this dramaturgy, the good asylum seeker humbly accepts whatever material provisions are offered without complaint. Although it is impossible to survive on vouchers of 25 pounds a week, asylum seekers in the UK are expected to both conform to the law that is, not engage in illicit activity for cash, and to survive without the legal right to work for wages. In beginning the Asylum Seeker Project, we discussed some of the potential and pitfalls in representing their experiences through pictures. One subversive strategy is to shift the moral locus of violence from the distant land from which this, the asylum seeker fled, often a site of old world patriarchy, to the violence of the US and the UK, new world patriarchy, in fulfilling responsibilities to international res, re, uh, resolutions concerning um, migrants seeking asylum. 
by exposing the massive expenditures and political investments in prisons, border policing and monitoring, and its ideological cloak of protector, we expose the illusions of state power. The stories of asylum seeker become a story about the state itself and its bogus claims of protecting citizens from dangerous border crossers and the power of various agents of the state to properly screen out unwelcome newcomers. While research have an ethical and social responsibility to faithfully document the stories of vulnerable groups, mindful of how translators shape the accounts that emerge, researchers also carry responsibilities to expose, as Butler describes it, how stories operate within, quote, the context of an enabling and limiting field of constraint, unquote. With cuts to education, social welfare, and widening economic inequality in both the UK and the US, accompanied by bankers seeking economic asylum from regulation throughout the world, stories of poor people routinely stopped at militarized borders must be put in the context of the free flow of capital across those same borders. Projected onto the asylum seeker are many of the same attributes routinely assigned to oppressed people. They are lazy, sneaky, untrustworthy, and expressing an unacceptable entitlement. Advocates po often point out, rightfully, that the actual attributes of asylum seekers are typically quite the opposite. Leaving a dangerous place and making one's way to a safer country requires resourcefulness, stamina, and means of drawing on a human community of helpers along the way. The stories of asylum seekers bear witness to horrible forms of human exploitation and the avarice of traffickers and the insensitivity of border guards, and to inspiring expressions of human generosity and self-sacrifice. It is the elite who are able to disavow their dependency on others, to look without really seeing, as they fast track their way through gates and across national boundaries. The psychoanalyst Melanie Klein introduced terms that carry us some distance in unpacking border tensions around asylum advocacy and suggesting outlines for cross-border work. Klein developed the term paranoid schizoid position to describe a dynamic the world, where the world outside of an imagined protective container, whether the individual, the group, or the nation, becomes more and more threatening as it becomes the receptacle for projected hostility and aggression. If I am frightened, I must be under attack. If I am under attack, I must attack back. Klein also describes how this paranoid position serves as a defense against guilt over one's own aggression or the aggression and violence committed by one's group, since it habitually re relies on projecting all of the bad outward. So now the product. Researchers and asylum seekers came together to document a collective story of women migrating from a world of danger to a place of safety and the obstacles they navigated in the journey. Their stories captured various currents of women's lives globally, 
But like other cultural narratives, their individual stories map a common tale of women's lives as border crossers. Meaning to produce a product from the process, dilemmas arise over bridging the meaning assigned to particular photos taken, for example, of a school or a billboard, and the construction of a, of a collective account. Rather than a step in the research process, the negotiation of consent unfolded as participants made choices about the form of data and its use. For example, most women expressed early on a concern with images of their faces appearing on YouTube or some other public site, like yours. <laughs> so, it's always consideration. Um, many asylum seekers keep a low profile, fearing ret retaliation by border agency officials if they make public statements. Those denied asylum but refusing to leave, the ultimate situation of the majority of asylum seekers, live in chronic fear of discovery and threat of deportation. One dilemma that emerged in the process of producing the video for the asylum project centered on how to convey the complex humanity of asylum seekers while concealing their identities. One suggestion was to blur the women's faces or cast them in shadows. My resistance to these suggestions centered on the way such identity-concealing effects circulate in the crime media as a marker of deviance. With the aim of avoiding women's faces and protecting privacy, the videographer kept the flip camera focused uh, below the shoulders. Um, at the end of the first day of our study, we found that we had a rich trove of images of women's breasts. <laughs> Talk about unintended consequences. <laughs> the 10-minute video presented here developed through a collaborative process, including exchanges of versions of the edit with the group in the UK that met to discuss and comment on earlier versions. Bridging individual and group representations of the worlds of asylum seekers, we sought to tell a, a story of movement through a locale and asylum seekers as complex and active agents in navigating that locale, mindful of our potential as researchers to collude in the persecutory apparatus of the state, even in our attempts to bear witness to lives lived precariously on the margins. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was really fascinating, really brought up a lot of uh, questions. Um, and I guess for me, what I was thinking a lot about is, um, I suppose for anyone who approaches advocacy through media, it's very difficult to think of ways to do that in any other way but seeking out um, individual narratives, um, individual testimony, and you offered a lot of criticisms to that method. Um, uh, so, and it seems like what you're proposing is a move away from that style, you know, the testimony, individual story, uh, and you presented some really interesting um, examples of how that can um, kind of pervert the, the action that's trying to, you know, be taken there uh, to more of a kind of, um, I guess, abstracted, more representational, more kind of collective uh, presentation of different uh, stories. I was just wondering if you could speak a little more about that and also maybe talk about um, 
where and how you see that happening in the film uh, mm -hmm. that you just showed us. Thank you. Thank you. This, I'll, I'll briefly comment, but then thought it might be good to open it up to other others who may, in, in response to what I've been presenting, have some ideas from their own work uh, as well. But there's been, I think, psychologically, there's always um, a, um, a, a ta the task of every liberatory movement is to, in a way, to project the bad back on to the oppressor and reclaim a sense of their own goodness, in a way. So ideas like sisterhood is powerful, black is beautiful. Um, these are terms where you say, it's not, I'm not the bad one, they're the bad ones. Um, now there's always a risk in reclaiming a sense of one's own capacity and goodness over against the projections that have shaped one's subjectivity in an oppressive situation. There's always a potential for over-idealizing oneself or one's group. So it's, it's, it's interested me for quite some time how you reclaim, reclaim without romanticizing. And in this project, I, I mean, over time, I've become very uh, sensitized to over-romanticized over or over-idealized images of the oppressed because it imposes an impossible standard on people that ultimately means many people don't conform to those standards. And I think asylum seekers and refugees have been at times idealized and romanticized, and many don't conform to that. People have various circumstances and complicated situations that lead them to cross borders. So what I try to do here is, you're right, move from the power of the individual testimony to move you to, in, in, to sympathize rather to the, the, the work of the group, in a sense, and other capacities that leave more room for different ways of thinking about people than if their own story is going to move you. Now here, in addition, I also, Maggie and I wanted to shift the focus um, from the, que the question of the authenticity of the story to the, to the legitimacy of the state. So there was a, a lot of framing women in relation to this, this very confining context and the, um, the role of the state and the, 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 um, the difference between people who come across borders, typically poor people, and the flow of capital across borders. Because this, the, the policing of borders simultaneously emerged as economic barriers to the flow of capital around the world were dismantled. And so it's, in, it's how you frame the context of the story that became very important to me rather than simply presenting refugees in their, quote, bare humanity, a term that's been around actually for some time, that human rights are based on a, a kind of bare humanity and that strips people of a lot in the process. But I think there are a number of strategies that, um, and decisions to be made along the way with this, this kind of project. I, I also think it's, it's important as researchers, Maggie and I both teach in universities and have 
um, have resources, and this is our work doing pro field projects such as this, and to not hide behind the skirts of refugee women. So for me, having, having a narration that clearly we wrote, and our voice is there, but to not override the women voice, their voices, that you have a kind of a recognition that these are not simply spontaneous productions of women themselves, because there's always someone editing and producing these um, projects, photo voice projects, and it's often not the women participants themselves. So that was another aim here. Thank you, that was very interesting. Um, I'm wondering about the relationship between the film as the product at the end and the research, and whether you see it as being a film that's based on research, you know, it's, it's the outcome of research, or whether the filmmaking is the research. I don't know if you get the distinction, but this is something that's, that sort of troubles... How empirical is this? <laughs> yes, and, and how does... Uh -huh. it, I mean, it, it said at the end about there having been... The, there were thanks to a participatory action research group. Yeah. And so could you also say something about the involvement of the women in the process or, or you know, expand on that a little bit? There's quite a bit to be said about the research context. Actually, the, this grew out of a study by a, a, a team at Durham that had been carried out for over a year. Um, the, uh, it's a project on um, race, crime, and social justice in Northeast England. And the team had carried out a number of surveys on this very topic, particularly attending to the experiences of women around safety and um, experiences of well-being in um, this region of England where there have been many asylum seekers placed over the last five years or so. And there, there was quite a hefty report written, a, a report that was submitted to whatever office of the government such reports are submitted to. But they asked me to come in. I came under a, in under a Fulbright uh, scholar, as a Fulbright scholar this last May and June, to produce something out of the project that would have an impact on the community. Because these reports and scholarly um, summaries are notoriously ineffective <laughs> in circulating outside of academic audiences or outside of a, a government um, office. So this was the... Um, this was its own study, but part of a larger project. Now there were also a set of um, methods that I didn't take up here. All of the women were given 100, provided, a, they were recruited through a local refugee council center. They, most of them didn't know each other, but had found out about the project through a, a local refugee center and were told that our interest was in working together to produce a, a, a picture, of, a kind of close-up picture of their experience in that community. Um, they were each um, provided with a 150-pound voucher if they completed the three weeks of the project. And then they continued on um, beyond that in, in getting together to review different versions of, the, of this video. They also each selected a photo um, from, from their um, about 24 
three or five and then reduce further one photo each from um, the, the pictures they took for this exhibition and text that would, and it had the aim of many of these photo voice projects. I, I, I'm sure many of you have seen them where you have a picture and then some text that's meant to bring you closer in to the lived experience of a group that tends to be either invisible or marginalized. And then my job was to produce the, the video as a social intervention. And it, it conforms to many of the methods in the photo voice um, tradition in, in general. And that was part of my interest in speaking about this issue today and, and developing some of the lines of argument I presented here. Is that the, the photo voice method is very undeveloped and often it's, it is like a travel log kind of thing. It's like, well, the, the pictures often seem kind of random or they seem to illustrate something that I think flatten out the complexity of both what that picture means to the participant, you know, the, the configuration of images, and also the, the um, audience of reception. So I've been a attempting to work through many of these questions that are not so easy when you move from various conventions of data gathering to text analysis. Most of my projects have been content analysis, based on content analysis. Although my documentaries have all been based on transcriptions, and this as well, transcriptions of audio uh, of interviews and then a thematic analysis um, that emerges with coders and that kind of thing. So I, I, we had little, with this we had little bits and pieces, very much like a guerrilla <laughs> video project, you know, where you make your suit, also shifting metaphors where you have, you know, you're making soup out of what you have available. You know, it was just all these photos and then bits and pieces of audio from, because different women carried the audio recorder around, little bits and pieces of video, and so, there wasn't a lot of material, but I wanted to produce something that um, had a point of view, um, but also was based on an analysis of recurring themes in the material. There were nine sites that actually emerged in the project where women had agreed on these maps, that these were sites of significance to them. I picked three for this project that I thought were both the site, the police station as a, as, as an oppressive site, the refugee center where women all express feeling welcome, and then these open public spaces so that there would be kind of a, a range, but that, you know, I, so I, I selected from the material that could be written up in a more conventional, um, way of analyzing material, but I know I didn't go through all of those methods here. I don't know if it is convenient or not. I don't know how to handle it. That I am with my object of study, which I mean my migrant woman. I am making a documentary about Mexican woman, migrant woman here in New York. And I have my thesis, right? My own thesis about what they are doing but I don't know how to handle the thing of telling them or not what is the main idea of the doc in, I mean, 
because I don't want them to to make my idea their idea, and then the naturality of everything changes. Yeah. But that, but also I feel, I don't know if it's bad or not, but something inside me tells me to to tell them more, because for me they are doing, they are resisting patriarchy and capitalism at the same time. But I don't want even to tell them those concepts because they are going to be like afraid of what I'm doing, and also I don't know how to to embrace them in the information because at the same time I want to give them the information about whether about what they are doing, but I don't think that's my my job. But I don't know how to handle that thing of giving information about what the documentary is about. But they are part of it, so maybe I don't know how to handle it. That is such an important um, issue, and I've, I've struggled with it for a very long time as a, as a researcher with an interest in activism and not simply documenting the world um, as it exists, but kind of opening up possibilities and kind of keeping your ear to the ground for potentials in situation that are not immediately um, apparent or um, to direct observation with a, a kind of political analysis and social analysis that there, where there's always a danger of overlaying that on the voices of others. And in the same way that some of the literature-cited critiques NGOs for using women's testimonials to advance their own projects and in well-meaning, even in a well-meaning sense, um, women becoming, uh, transporting some other uh, mission beyond that which they intend. So for me, it, throughout all my projects, I've been interested in both the negotiation and how, how I see things um, and talking about that, but also trying to not um, impose a framework that that doesn't fit with where people are. And I think this kind of work, qualitative methods and field projects in general, force you to come to terms with that, that I think is always part of research, you're, what you're attuned to, what you're receptive to, what you document is always based on your own premises. But I think through these projects and ongoing collaboration, you can have kind of dialogue over those points. Um, my first project that grew out of the Sierra Leonean Civil War and working in refugee camps there, I wanted to document women's stories about that war and their understandings of the causes of the war and the peace process. And I, midway through, I thought, I'm making these women sound way more radical than they are. You know, I'm using them. And so we would go back and forth. This went on for a couple years where um, where I kind of drew on them to check me around that. But it's also the case that carrying out a project, people do develop um, understandings over time, and it has to be also a two-way conversation. Whereas a researcher, you learn um, and become reflective about your own blind spots and where a particular analysis may not fit at all with people's lives. And so I think it, if, it, if it's not a two-way conversation, it's just another form of missionary work. 
even under the guise of radical social justice commitments. But I, I think the fact that you're aware of that is so important that, um, but it's ultimately a question that you have to work with rather than clearly can be answered. Hi, first of all, thank you so much for being here tonight and giving the presentation. Um, my question is, what is your recommendation on how we can draw a link from scholarship and research to implementation programs for policy and advocacy that can actually directly be beneficial to asylum seekers and people who are uh, seeking refugee status globally? That, do you have any ideas? <laughs> well, I think what you're talking about is how, as I hear you, how do we think about these kinds of projects as part of a broader project of, of social change? Right, um, exactly. I mean, for me, I mean, I guess it gets back to the point you were raising about how, how you bring your own kind of political agenda to, to a project. I really have been struggling through my own view on open borders and began to be particularly concerned in, in, throughout this project after I had already accepted the Fulbright thing and was on my way. I thought, is there some risk here in focusing on women in ways that then have this effect of, of um, advancing a typology of the good asylum seeker, women as more virtuous than ordinary economic migrants where you kind of support, you're supporting something but on the backs of something else. Now, one of the images talked about a lot in the literature terms is that asylum seekers often feel they're being treated like criminals. Um, and treated as though they're criminals, and it's true. I mean, that a lot of uh, the the whole issue of of border policing has become progressively criminalized, and I've I've come to more be persuaded by a minority but growing position growing position for open borders, not only decriminalizing, but that people unless someone is um, crosses a border and is understood to be a threat, people should be able to cross borders. And throughout much of our history, people have, even from Mexico and Canada until uh, you know when, <laughs> people crossed freely across those, uh, the, from the US to Mexico and Canada. But now the burden of proof is on a person crossing a border that they are not a criminal, that they are so the, the burden of proof is on refugees and asylum seekers. And so if, if, but even using the language of being treated like a criminal can presuppose that it's okay to treat criminals a certain way. So there is quite a discourse on how terrible it is to treat people, put people in detention centers as though they're criminals. And it's an important, Point, but it can also kind of accept as a premise that it's okay to treat other people in these ways. So there's always this problem, I think, of how you advance a campaign and at whose expense. But it's it is it is um, it's a very complicated issue. The the whole issue of borders and and which borders we should acknowledge through participating in whatever process of 
of assessing claims are at stake, but also to be, I think, thoughtful about and try to work through and question the whole concept of, of national sovereignty around borders. So for me now, going through this process, I, I've come to align myself with the open borders campaign rather than simply liberalizing the criteria. I think similar debate happens around the abolitionist movement and prison reform. Some argue for prison reforms, humanizing prisons, reducing sentences. Others argue for dismantling our prisons. And these are sometimes not entirely compatible um, and at, at a certain strategic level. But I think that's always important to think about the broader campaign that you're part of. One thing I, I, I thought was interesting was that the women that, that, that in the film, uh, they all had skills. I mean, they were all, you know, the nurses and the, uh, whatever, you know. So, so in a sense, their labor, it's labor crossing borders in order to be able to, to sell, you know, to, to sell, its, sell itself. In other words. But as you have these, um, you know, more and more concentrations of capital, that in transnational corporations, transnational interests, wealthy people with bank accounts in Switzerland and the Cayman Islands, whatever it is, that there's no sense that, uh, that, that so, but at the same time, you have, they're restricting the borders with regard to the movement of labor. So it's an attempt to control, that's what it seems like, an attempt to control labor and keep people from selling their skills on an international market. Yes. I think at, there, there's a kind of economic labor analysis that um, advocates of open borders advance, as well as the, an argument that looks at kind of the psychology, the kind of group psychology of borders. And as life becomes more precarious for people in a country, you know, the importance of fortified borders and feeling the, the notion of the protector we've heard endless references to this in presidential debates these last week. Who's the strongest, better protector of us during these troubled times? You know, it's, it's a standard um, technique we're all familiar with around, um, around border psychology. So there's that, that part of it as well. And I think both are, are at play here and we've tried to combine them both. But yes, I think you're absolutely right. Well, thanks so much for your presentation. Very, very um, interesting and impressive. I'm thinking about, in, in a kind of different register, about genre. And, and is there a way to burst the boundaries of the documentary even further than you have in this project? I mean, I see what you're trying to do and uh, shifting perspective and point of view here and um, having the women whose situation you're documenting framing the story in some fashion. But I guess I, I was thinking as I was watching this about a, a very different kind of um, film intervention. That It's kind of old now, but it's Trin Minh Ha's surname yet given name Nam. I don't know if you're yeah. familiar with that. Yes. And yeah. the complicated way in which she genre busts in representing the experience of Vietnamese women yes. during and after the war. And then you know, there's a trick where the whole thing changes because you 
find out that the women who are portraying the women are actually actresses and then they're portraying themselves at the end and so on. Yeah. And I just, and I'm, I'm interested in what she was doing with that and the, and the way that mm -hmm. it disrupted people's expectations because it, it, it transformed the notion of what a documentary is. And so I'm just wondering about how you think about your work Mm -hmm. in relationship to that question of, yeah. the, you know, what are the limits of the genre of documentary? Yeah, Tr Trin Min Ha is, um, is an unusual documentarian because she comes out of both film theory and production. Usually these are very different worlds where, where the, on the production side there's not a lot of theory or it's not very developed. Um, whereas on the film theory side, it's super, super abstract and, and difficult to follow all the moves and she brings them together and I think um, do, uses um, perspective and shifting perspective taking in, in interesting ways. I mean, I, I wouldn't call this a documentary. Um, it's, I mean, it, it's a, a, a video that came out of of a process, but by but usually when you're working with a documentary, there's been a much more um, development of of the of the approach, whether it's a more of an expository approach. This is more expository in that sense, which is it's like an extended essay. There are expository documentaries are like an extended essay and there's an argument you're developing and you're advancing that argument. Then there's a observational approach where you're trying to, sometimes it's sort of a fly on the wall thing, where, but others, you're more using the lived experience of people um, as it unfolds to tell a story, but it's, um, it doesn't conform to this kind of essay format. And then there's something called the self-reflective genre approach where the filmmaker is trying to work through a problem or, and is more in, the, in relation to the material, um, which I think is that approach would conform to um, that uh, self-reflective tradition of documentary forms. But I, you know, with, with media now, with, with these technologies more widely available, um, I think it's it's an exciting time to be doing documentary work and experimenting. I mean, there is a, a rich tradition through universities and art departments, film schools of experimental films at MoMA. I saw a number of them yesterday. I had no idea what they were about. <laughs> These really super abstract, you know, films that are for other art students or film students. But to do some, to produce something, and Trin Minh Ha is kind of at that border um, that also speaks to an audience where it's accessible. People can enter into it and and also have some have some sense of the language of the film. Um, is is an additional challenge, but it's I think a very exciting time for working with um, many of these um, technologies and methods. Thanks.